Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Shannon Kalyanamit, brings over 20 years of experience in entrepreneurship, building and scaling large businesses from establishment to exit, technology and startups, and investments, finance and banking, M&A, and venture capital. She is an American-born Southeast Asian rooted with deep networks in government, business, and technologies. She is currently CEO and founder of 5G Catalyst Technologies Co. Limited, an end-to-end 5G technology and solutions provider. She is also currently advisor and partner at Gobi Partners, a pan-Asian venture capital. Shannon is passionate, equality, and a woman advocator, often seen moderating or speaking on topics on women and gender equality with the UN Women. She's also a notable speaker on topics of technology and business in Southeast Asia and is advising the various Thai government agencies and the Eastern Economic Corridor on its digital transformation strategy. Shannon has a BBA in finance and minor in marketing from Thammasat University, Bangkok, Thailand. Shannon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Wow. It's always weird to hear it all over again. <laughs> but thanks, thanks, Maggie and Brian. Um, happy to be here. Thank you. I want to start this podcast by saying you're such a badass. And we're so lucky to have you on today. Just listen to your bio. I'm just like, man, where do we even unfold during this podcast, you know? And for this podcast, for you guys listening, we want to cover Shannon's life, everything that she's done up to this point and what keeps her going. So we'll hop, we'll hop into the very beginning, Shannon. Where were you born? Yeah, happy, happy to like? Thank you. Yeah, it's uh like I said, I feel old now. <laughs> it's like all this stuff has happened. You're not old at all. But yeah, happy to share. Happy to share. Yeah, let's, let's start with your upbringing. Uh, where were you born, and uh, what was your upbringing like? Okay. Um, so as you know, I live in Bangkok, Thailand now, but I was born in a little town called Portland, Oregon, um, way long time ago. Um, my dad, where I'm Thai, so my mom and dad, who was a or who is an engineer and nurse, uh, had gone there for to complete their studies. There were jobs available at that time. Then we moved down to California, so Cupertino. Uh, in California when I was two uh, and basically just stayed in the Bay Area. So we made our home in um, in Fremont, California. Um, and I was living there. Uh, I, oh, God, I remember the Bay Area. So uh, Milpitas, San Jose. I, I, <laughs> by the way, so it was. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to date you, but can you tell us what year this was? Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> I'm so sorry. Because so the Bay has changed so much in the last, like, 15 years. It has. Because, yeah, because I went, like, before COVID. Um, no, God, I went, like, 10 years ago, and it changed. Um, so I left the Bay in 1990. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. People are listening. Are they, wait, that was when I was born. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. You have so much wisdom. I'm yeah. Wait to hear more. Yeah. So, and, and okay. So was there, went to San Jose mission, um, sorry, St. Joseph's Catholic school. And, um, 
we grew up there, loved it. Then my dad decided one day. Um, so we, you know, as a Thai, every Sunday we go to the Thai temple to learn and try to become Thai. So we practice Thai dancing or we, um, we try to learn Thai. It was really difficult because nobody spoke, spoke Thai. And so, um, one Sunday, the then prime minister of Thailand uh, went to that temple and basically got onto this whole entire thing called the reverse brain drain project. And what that is, is he was trying to be like, OK, fellow Thais, like come back to Thailand and help, you know, like help build Thailand and become this greater thing. So my dad got invigorated and he's like, OK, I'm going to go. So uh, we sold our house, moved back to Thailand. Wow. I didn't have a choice. I was 12. Mm-hmm. Um, I had two other, have two other sisters. Um, and so I was 12, 10 and eight. We all moved back. And, uh, and then I was in Thailand. Um, so we went to an international school at that time. This is so weird. At that time, I actually thought that Thailand was a land of stilts and people rode to schools on elephants um that'd be so cool actually <laughs> i feel like that's how they uh the, how they promote it and market it in like <laughs> magazines and stuff you know <laughs> it's terrible like i was like the worst tie right um didn't even know anything about my own heritage even though i had been to thailand just to remember so I came back and it was a city bustling and everything uh started in an international school um And I do remember that even though it was an international school, I had had to deal with so many things that one year when I was 12, like one culture shock. Um, uh, What basically I was in a school, but this school was also half kind of like a language school. So we had a ton of Asians like Thais who who were older than me. Basically, they wanted to learn English. So if I was 12, there were like 15 year olds in my class. Right. So um, somehow I got verbally bullied a lot because, yeah, I, I look Thai. Uh, I mean, I'm I look Thai. Right. But mm-hmm. I don't act or speak Thai. And so they basically called me, lack of a better word, a fraud. Uh, they're, they're really mean words um, being hurled and um, really mean things that were done. But at that time and also I was weird. Um, so at that time, I don't know what happened. I did find a group of another eclectic misfits um, and something dawned upon me this one day. I remember I just clicked. It's like, OK, fine. I'm weird. Let's move on. You know, I'm weird. I'm just going to own it. I'm going to be this person, you know, and, and then everybody else. Uh, when I was to so the sixth grade, they all had boobs already. Uh-huh. <laughs> They were also attractive. The guys that I like, nobody liked me. I had my glasses. I was reading babysitter club books. Um, and it was terrible. It's like the worst year for me. So it was like this puberty thing. Plus uh-huh. I couldn't speak Thai, um, culture shock, um, misfits. But then um, and some. Um, my parents basically were starting to get a divorce at the same time. So a lot of challenges that happened at the same year. Um, Fast forward, uh, got through that year. Um, I think the only reason how I got through that year was that um, I had no other alternative because I had two other sisters I had to take care of. 
you know, be the older sister. I think us Asians, we understand that, you know, oh, you're the oldest sister you have to sacrifice. Like, and so basically I sacrifice my emotions and feelings. Right. So, so I think that's kind of built the foundation for a lot of things I still hold to today. Um, and I think uh, a lot of these struggles, uh, relationship or parental or moving or uh, uprooting your life, you know, at such a young age and moving back and forth, it actually really does build your character. Um, so yeah, so I guess that's a long winded way. I moved over. I I started school here. Um, then I ended up starting to have fun at school. So grade seven, grade eight, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then there was this one year, it's so funny. I think I was in ninth grade. Um, it was before the Asian crisis. Mm-hmm. And I think we were already seeing signs of the economy crashing. So there's this one year we had this influx of American uh, or Australian or uh, British Asians that mm-hmm. came into our school. And it was really fun because uh, prior to that, it was predominantly a lot of like Indians or Thais or Filipinos, uh, but basically predominant like Taiwanese. We had Koreans, um, but they were really from their country. Right. Mm -hmm. But we didn't have that influx of like the Asians or the westernized kind. So this one year came in and then here came a ton of hip hop. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, um, so we had, God, I'm dating myself now, but hopefully the people, that's why I asked you who's listening, right? (laughs) Relate here. But we had a ton of like Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg. Like we we literally (laughs) were trying to- We thought that's so relatable. That's That's part of my time too. (laughs) Really? Okay, okay. So so yeah, and we were dressed up in our like hip hop clothing and then like people were like the brands and all this other stuff. And God, we even had our own East Coast, West Coast in Thailand. It was terrible. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) That's a whole other story. Anyway, but um, back to back to that. So what happened was there were some things that happened during that year. Um, Of course, in your teens, um, you know, you, you go through your first heartbreak and all this other stuff that happened for me. Uh, Then I decided to write a business plan to my dad saying that, you know what, it's time that I go back to the States. Mm. So um, I wrote a business plan uh, and had all these reasons. I didn't know it was called a business plan. (laughs) So basically I went, um, I got back to the States. I was, I went to Benicia high school, which um, was another kind of weird culture shock for me as well. Um, At that time I was a, can I say this? Like, it's actually like, basically I was fresh off the boat. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I got the opposite of that kind of racism when I came mm-hmm. back. Right. So it's like, wait, you're not really American. Um, you know, the way you dress, the way you act and all this other stuff. And, and it was, it was a little tough, but I did find my crew, you know, my crowd and all this other stuff. And, and it was actually quite fun um, to a certain point. And then um, in grade 12, I decided actually it's a two things and think about serendipity in life. Um, the same guy that broke up with me wanted me back. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah, I know this is turning into a love relationship. <laughs> I'll get into entrepreneurship. Soon. No, but, but that, um, that drives a lot too. I feel like relationships and heartbreaks and 
the people who you build relationships with friendships, they, they do mean like a lot to you. You're, yeah. You're amazing. Yeah. Yeah. The foundations. So, so it's really I, interesting. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I mean, I don't know, hopefully people can relate. Right. I, yeah. so I tell a lot of people, they always ask, why did you move back to Thailand? You know, you're already in the States. Actually, I got into some, I was just applying to universities. Um, and had I actually taken the U.S. university route, I would be completely a different person. Mm-hmm. So at that time, yes, maybe the motivation for me moving back was that guy. Um, it didn't happen. I came back. He had a girlfriend, whatever. But um, I came back. And again, wrote my dad a business plan and basically mapped out that Asia is going to be the thing, um, mm-hmm. you know, the where it's at in the next 10, 20 years. And that I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to be a small, what was a big fish in a small pond, basically. And um, and so that really was the true reason of coming back. I mean, I did also did believe that there was something in Asia Mm-hmm. So when people ask me, especially people when they're in the States or abroad, like, why did you move back? OK, the truth is there was that guy issue. But I really did believe that Asia was going to become I mean, I was already there. So I already saw what it was. Right. So mm-hmm. um, I already saw what it was going to be as well. And at that time, China hasn't even become the powerhouse that it was. I moved back in 1996. And um, and then and then at that time. That was the Asian crisis, but we were starting to see things technologically and technological advances from China already. So I was happy I did. And so then um, I came back to Thailand, got into Tamasat, uh, mm-hmm. which is um, international program. Um, so I did finance, also a big culture shock, but it was actually a nicer culture shock. Um, mm-hmm. They're all they're mostly Thai, a lot of international kids as well. Um, but definitely a it's not the university college experience you would get in the States. Um, but it was a nice way for me to get grounded of being Thai again, like mm. the real, it was like being in Thai school, but then we spoke English. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So those were some of the great best years, um, that I had, you know, in, in college. Um, so did that for a while, barely graduated, um, didn't do so well, but I think that i Basically, I'm, I'm a very social person. So extracurricular activities are really big to me. Cheerleading, throwing events, charities, all this other stuff. So I think for me, like one of the big things that I got from, you know, university is um, is actually the network and friends and, and fundamentals of finance. But frankly, I didn't know any fi- like when I when I got my internship at Pricewaterhouse, um, I got it because um i had interviewed for a position again internship um at the corporate finance and investment banking division and at that time they were only accepting people that were um masters and above mm-hmm. and so i had gone in had re- read the papers about some debt restructuring that happened like earlier in the week and somehow i found out that they were actually looking at a deal similar to that um, without naming names. And uh, and then I got hired just because we got into this nice conversation. Um, and of course I was an intern, so I zero, I, I photocopied a lot. Um, but, you know, from then, and this is the dawn of technology, we got our emails and everything. 
And uh, yes, this is that long ago. And so because I was the resourceful young one that knew how to use and search things on the Internet, um, I became a valued resource. So they ended up offering me a full time job um, and my English and Thai. So I so one thing that I thank my dad was being able to learn to read and write Thai at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um I had to get a tutor and stuff. So for me, a lot of my friends, because it was the Asian crisis, right? They, if they only spoke English, uh, they actually didn't get a job. Mm-hmm. And if they only spoke Thai, they did get a job, but they actually got a really low salary. So for me to be able to like read and write both English and Thai, granted my Thai is like seventh grader um, level, but it was able, it was good enough to, um, to work you know, in, in PwC. So, yeah, so I started my career in PwC. Um, and I was there for a while. Uh, we, we actually worked on an e-commerce in 2000 and it was just way before it's time. Um, and then fast forward, I actually interned, um, in a company, which was a subsidiary of Lehman brothers. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so basically I, frankly, this is really, idiotic of me, but when I was in finance school, right, when I did my finance undergrad, I didn't know um, the difference of the different types of finance jobs there were. So financial advisor, you know, all this other stuff, investment banking. So finally got into, uh, so did the internship, actually got a job. um, So worked at the Lehman Brothers office in Bangkok, Thailand uh, for about three, four years, 2000, yeah three and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say those were the best fundamental years of my life because, um, and the, like, I don't know if you guys watch sex in the city, maybe, <laughs> yeah. but, but there's like four girls, right? So me and uh-huh, my yeah. crew, we had one, um, American Indonesian, mm-hmm. uh, she was from Tufts, one Thai, uh, from Stanford, one um myself right and then we had a hong kong uh girl from nyu and so it was the best time so we just enjoyed our investment making jobs um i was sent to the philippines uh to do some work you know at 22 you're like oh my god i'm getting this flight, you know, it's like you guys, right? Once you graduate, then people start sending you places. So in, in Thailand, my first job was to go to the Philippines. So I'm mm-hmm. like thinking I'm badass and I have a <laughs> nice you, you little are badass. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I was so cocky. It was terrible. I was oh so no. Cocky. You should have seen have every right to be. And you know, just pausing here for a bit. Congratulations, you know, on that early success and be able to come back to Thailand and refine your identity. Mm-hmm. I think the the biggest thing that my biggest takeaway away from your story and up until now, it's like the fact that you can readjust really well to both environments just speaks volume to your ability to sort of use your EQ a lot and just adapt. And you know, as we know talking to a lot of entrepreneurs, we say EQ is probably more important than IQ in business. And you demonstrate that a lot, you know? Um, yeah. So- I also wanted to just like um, echo what Brian said. I also wanted to, to touch on that topic as well. You going back and forth from the States to Thailand that, you know, takes a lot of courage and, 
you know, you being born in the States and going to Thailand, going through the identity crisis and then going back to America and going through another identity crisis. But then it sounded like you were able to learn how to embrace who you were. Right. And then as you went back to Thailand to go to school again, um, you've grown so much, you know, and we could definitely see that because you know exactly what to expect now, right? Now that you're going back to Thailand for the second time. So I just really wanted to commend you for that, for just like being so, being able to be, like be so mobile and really embracing who you are. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to skip ahead a little bit and talk a little bit more about your experience as CEO of Iconic Media in 2009. Oh my God. Wow. So you saw that, huh? <laughs> what was the transition like working in corporate for nine years, right? Or, or more. And finally yeah, decided so... at one point, you're like, I want a business. I want to be a business leader. And how different was it during that time period? Yeah. So that happened after, so I did the banking thing. Right. And then I, I joined a, a company called Singh Javier, which you guys probably know, we uh, here, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> what? It's not, it's not a promotion, but we love Singha beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do too. You're either like a Singha person or a Chang person, Chang, right? But then if you get the Chang, then you always get Chang overs. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I've never heard of that. Singha joke. It's like the worst. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So, so did that for a while. But the good thing about Singha was. Um, I had gotten my feet wet in terms of events and, and celebrities. I had to take care of VJ Singh, some sports celebrities across the world. I had to take care of um, Miss Universe. Um, and then I went, I remember going down Hollywood and we were trying to get into like, put Singha beer into Geisha house. And then like at that time, Paris Hilton and people were again, so, so long ago, Paris Hilton and Britney Spears were going to that. Lindsay Lohan was down. There. So we were trying to get ourselves into, you know, those kind of clubs and, and um, bars and whatever. Um, and so that's where I first understood the power of um, events, concerts, media, celebrities. Um, so I had a, project that didn't go through with Singha. I was very disappointed. Um, and then I realized that, you know what, it's never going to be my company. Obviously it's, it's a family company. Uh, and I was never really going to be in control. So I started iconic media. Um, I have to say iconic media was not at the least a success for me at all. I mean, in fact, it was a big failure. Um, I had started it, um, trying to get into the TV stations here. I had a lot of access with Korean and, and Taiwanese dramas and sitcoms at that time. And um, I thought that I had this, this thing at that time. I'm always very, I wanted to get into media education. I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to share things. I wanted to um, be a, a voice or actually be the medium to bring other people's voices and messages to, to, wherever I'm at. And that stems from a lot of, you know, me being in the States, seeing all these things, wanting to bring it to Asia and vice versa. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so I started Iconic Media with that vision. Um, the successes were, I actually got brought to bring in Asia's next top model. Yes, I know it's not like education, but it was something right. Um, so I brought in Asia's desktop model. I did some game shows, you know, brought some formats in the downside is I actually, and I threw a concert, a reggae concert. Oh, wow. wow. It was like 10,000 people, which is a lot in time. What? That's awesome. Yeah. 
And I even brought in like Diana King, Big Mountain, and a bunch of these like I love um, it. international. I had a Japanese porn star. Am I? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we had that just for kicks as well. Um, and so it was, a, it was a, a fun thing to do. Obviously, we made some money. But the downside is I actually wasn't disciplined enough. I didn't have the, the fundamentals for being an entrepreneur yet. You know, I, even though I did banking and finance, being able to run a company, cash flow, understanding how to hire people, it was... Um, it was really difficult. I didn't have the, the discipline and my legal work was not on point. So I actually got screwed by some of the TV stations that went like circumvented me and went straight to the Korean houses to buy their own content. So, so long story short for iconic, it was my first foray being uh, an entrepreneur. Um, it was fun. Um, but it, what ultimately killed it, um, was, um, there was one year in Thailand, uh, there was floods. And so advertising mm -hmm. was first to go. So that completely killed it. We didn't have any more cash flow, and that was done. Um, I did do another project for TV after that. I used some of the experience, but that was under a consulting job that I built. That's in another job, but basically me and my team got, um, a mandate to build, operate and, um, transfer over a, a TV station. Um, mm -hmm. This was, what was it, maybe 10 years ago where uh, Thailand was just moving from SD to HD mm -hmm. TV. And so what they did was they reformed some of the spectrum that they had. We only used to only have 10 channels. Now we have like, what, 24 or what was it, 30? Uh, I forget, we have like 50 channels now. Yeah. So they refarmed it, they made it into channels. And so we were hired by one of the big Thai businessmen to do that. So, you know, failure, it was really horrible actually. Um, and then got to reutilize some of that skill set there. But um, that's that's iconic media. <laughs> I mean, like you said, right? Startup life is super hard and most likely your first startup is going to fail. And the fact that you kept going, it never stopped you, you kept moving as long as you learn from your mistake, you know, and obviously you're so successful now. We, we look up to you a lot, but I'm pretty sure at the time it was very difficult. And it's like, you totally looked at yourself in a different light and asked yourself, am I cut up for this? Has there been any time where you looked yourself in the mirror and you're just like, dang, like maybe I'm not ready for this. And how'd you overcome that and start your next few companies? You know, like Moxie was one of them. Like, how did you overcome that failure and, and learn from it and, and continue growing? Yeah, you know, um, I could count probably about three major times that I really felt lost. And, and um, actually during the iconic one, that one was probably the worst in my now 43 years that I felt that I was really rock bottom. Um, I had lost, um, there are a lot of things that went wrong. It wasn't just business. It was also, I was 28 and uh, a woman single, uh, just completely single. Um, and you know, when you're 28 Asian, uh, you're getting close to 30 and you're still single. And then you don't really know where you're, that's why the failure was even harder, right? So you mm -hmm. don't even 
have a partner and your career. You don't even know yourself what you're good at. So that was probably the biggest, biggest. Um, and of course, there were um, vices that you turn to. <laughs> and I have to say, uh, and then you start hanging out with the wrong people. I'm not saying it's their fault, but, you know, you just try to let go and mm-hmm. and a bunch of things. So a lot of things happened during those um, three, four years. Um I think the way that I picked myself up from that one, because that could have gone really wrong, was that I think um, I just there were some things that I I really regret um, that went wrong. And um, and I woke up one day and I'm like, you know what, Shannon, like. You can't this is not the end of your book, like I have to say this is going to sound really bad, but it was pride. Basically, mm-hmm. it was just like, you know, this I can't I can't go like my tombstones. I'd be like, oh, that's the girl that did that, you know, or whatever. Right. Like she didn't even do anything with her life. So I'm like, OK, I need to do it. I mean, I have nothing more to lose. I'm already rock, rock, rock bottom. What am I going to do? So I actually and I use this every single time when I go through a crisis um, or when I'm lost and confused is that. Okay, I give myself time to cry or whatever it is, you know, be in fetal position, like go wallow and, and whatever, and then um, drink whatever people, you know, uh, as long as it's not dangerous. And then um, and then I actually pick myself up and then I take a trip by myself for at least a week or two. And I grab a journal and I um, I write down a SWAT of myself mm-hmm. and I actually go through my values um, you know, I go online and I'm like, okay, what values do I like? What, what did I not like about what I did before? What did I, what am I going? I actually do vision boards or 10 year planning. And then I'm like, okay, where am I on that? You know? So, so I do all that. And, um, and I, I find out some of the things that I like that's changed and some things that are just not me anymore. So for long story short for that one, what happened was, um, The upside was I had met my now ex, but uh, boyfriend at that time, the father of my children. Um, And that was one good upside. He gave me some inspiration because I was just dabbling into tech. Mm -hmm. I didn't know um, much about tech at all, frankly. Uh, And then when I came back to Bangkok, serendipity, my girlfriend, the Indonesian American, her she's best friend in the whole world, Patricia. um, She was like, hey, Shannon, you know, I got this offer. Um, well, I got this interview. It's a company called Rocket Internet. I have no idea what they do, but it sounds like it's kind of your jam. And then coincidentally, I got a LinkedIn at the same time from um, Rocket Internet. So I went in not knowing what it was. They were looking for investment bankers and consultants. Basically, Rocket Internet, as you guys know, is the Samwer Brothers across the world, you know, global domination in terms of e-commerce. And I was the second employee at Lazada. So it gave me a, another wind. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that was probably the biggest change in how I got my first step into tech. I, again, knew nothing about tech. At that time, I was like 31, 32, maybe. Just met my partner, um, mm-hmm. very rocky. Uh, because we, I mean, not Rocky, but very new. Right. So a lot of new things going on, but again, nothing to lose. So just dove into it. Um, and Lazada became such a boot camp for me. Uh, it was insane. Like just to understand, I mean, 
just to understand what tech was, how to build, how to scale, what people look for, how to like he had a playbook, you know, and um, everybody was just so focused and uh, it was a tough environment to be in. But in what was that, 2012, 11 or 12, Mm -hmm. that's when the Internet or e-commerce boomed in Southeast Asia. And I think that was the ride that I was hoping for that I had talked about a long time ago. Mm. So that definitely when I was like, okay, now I'm on the right rocket ship. Okay, this is it. All right, let's go. So Mm -hmm. that's that's how. So I don't know if I answered your question, but I do have a methodology. (laughs) Yeah, I just wanted to say, um, yeah, I I mean, your resilience, you know, you were you knew that you were rock bottom. And to be honest, some people who are at that rock bottom phase, they never get out of there. But you knew exactly what you needed to do to get out of there. And you, you know, instilled those practices. Um, And I did read like an article saying that when you were at Lazada, that really gave you that entrepreneurial push which is what brought you to, to create Moxie. Right. And like, just like the, the 180 that that's brought you to is just really inspiring, inspiring. Yeah. I, I love that because a lot of us, you know, as you mentioned earlier, our listeners kind of skip a gap between 24, 37 and then 60, 52, 61. <laughs> uh, so a lot of listeners are in that age right now where it's like, you know, they're in their twenties, thirties, early forties. And they almost feel like nothing's happening for them or nothing's right going for them, right? And it just feels really depressing, really rock bottom But just, I love hearing your story and your perspective because it's so holistic of your whole life experience, all 42, all 42 years that you have, right? And a lot of us right now, when we feel like 28, 29, 30, 31, we're like, oh my God, I'm so old. Like I can't fail anymore. I, I gotta <laughs> settle down with family, start with my kids and whatnot. But guess what? Life still goes, still moves on, man. Life still moves on. So I really love it because it's a story of resilience and continue pushing and innovating because, you know, your next company, which I can't wait to dive deep into more, it's like Moxie, right? I know Maggie mentioned earlier Moxie. This is a company that, that kind of puts you in the map, you know, and we read some articles on that and you, were, you sold this company. And this is where you've truly flourished because after selling the company, I don't want to skip too much ahead. <laughs> after, after selling the company, you started to think more about you know, empowering other women, minority leaders, other other groups. And I love that a lot because that's so similar to the mission of Asian Hustle Network and what you want to do. You know, so I can't wait for you to just dive deep, deep into this next part of your story with, with Moxie and, and tell us more about that. Yeah, thanks. It's uh it's been a ride, you know. I mean, um so at Lazada, um I did this thing called entrepreneur in residence where you just basically move around to different parts and and so I got to learn a lot of parts of the e-commerce and I thought, you know what? If they could do it, so could I. I mean, I also didn't have like that much money in the bank, right? That, that's, <laughs> that they did, but I didn't think that way at the time, very naive. Um but yeah, so me and two partners basically moved, uh, started our own company. We raised some money. Um, and at that time, we were trying to be the lack of a better word, hipper version of Lazada. Mm-hmm. Um, and for people who don't know, Lazada is the Amazon of, of Southeast Asia, where they are in six countries, uh, Thailand, Indonesia, Singapore, Vietnam, Philippines and Malaysia. 
And so I was part, I, I was the second Thai employee in the Thai office. So I was there, you know, when it was all starting and grew from, God, how many people from like 10 people to 300. It was crazy. Wow. Um, yeah. Again, not by me. It was a great team, right? Like I was like under, it was, they had a bunch of bankers and consultants. And so I kind of did the same playbook. So me and my partners who were also investment makers started Moxie again with that. So we couldn't, we didn't know our unique selling point yet. We weren't really sure what that was. Um, went through a lot of mistakes, almost ran out of money three times. Um, and then at one point, um, in case there are any entrepreneurs here that are pitching startups, we were just struggling. I think uh, in hindsight, there were two things. One, again, back to the cockiness. We thought that, okay, we're bankers. We know how to do this. You know, we don't need to go to any of the startup events. I found out later that as we know, startup is a complete different animal from SMEs. The way you pitch is different. The way you write things, the way you scale, hire people, the way you um, metrics that you look at, you know, the speed and all this other stuff. And so there were other tricks in the playbook. Um, and I was just too cocky to, to get into that peer system, going to the conferences and whatever. So finally, you know, I woke up when what well, not woke up. I, we realized, Hey, we should go. So we started going and um, the community is so great. I mean, you know, startup community, we're so open. We share things. We don't worry about competition as much. Um, and then because it's then a big play, enough playing field. So um, I started to make, you know, a little headway. I'm a bit older than the majority of the startup founders at that time. And uh, we were talking a lot about branding. I have to say the one thing that we did right in the, in the beginning was our branding. We partnered with a lot of celebrities. We did a lot of social media and a lot of um, charity impact. Um, we had fashion shows. It was, it was actually really cool. So um, and so we got some kind of attention with that. So I was called on stage to moderate my first my first panel. And I think that was actually the pinnacle or the turning point of how people started noticing us because I was on stage with a bunch of like big wigs in um, e-commerce. So there was a CEO of Zalora, uh, who was the fashion one of Lazada, right? And then there was like two, three other big uh, e-commerce that um, a friend of mine, Kaidi, which is like Olalex Classifieds. Um, and so with that panel, a lot of VCs, instead of me chasing them for, to look at my deck, uh, they actually wanted to know who I was. And so for people who are pitching out there, um, one of the tricks is not to do the push, but more the pull factor. Right. Yeah. And so I remember just another pro tip, just since we're here. Um, I remember that one day I was listening to the panels, other people were talking and Kylie, who is um, 500 startups in Malaysia uh, around here, he was doing this amazing talk. He's like Dave McClure, like just amazing talk and everything. And everybody is like flocking to, you know, give him their business card. And I tried to give him my business card and I'm like, oh, we do like an e-commerce. He didn't, he totally didn't look at me, put his <laughs> business card in his pocket, just completely didn't look at me. And then that night we had, I forget what happened, but we had a lockdown not COVID related, but it was like military related or something in Bangkok and nobody could go out. 
So I asked a friend, luckily, who had a private nightclub. So we opened a nightclub. And so Kylie was like, oh, my God, I heard you did this. What's your name? I need to know what you do. And he had no idea that that was me earlier. Anyway, so it's a funny story because it's the whole entire like. So the theory of that is if people like you as a person, they'll actually want to know what you actually do. So if there are any aspiring people are there pitching here, try to do the pull factor, not the push factor. Anyway, I agree. That's very effective. <laughs> yeah, we, we always try to, I mean, as you know, we, we raise money for Asian Hustle Network, we realize that, you know, it's better for people to ask more about us and create more value to the world, you know, and what you did was a classic example of creating value for someone's life. And they want to know more about you. Just be authentic, you know, like yeah. there's a lot of times where you approach people and that person thinks, this person just asked me again, why is, why is everyone yeah. such a taker? You know, and you change the mentality yeah. to be giving value. That's how, that's how you gain your leverage. But you guys are giving back so much. I mean, I'm sure that you guys interview a bunch of people out there that, I mean, not only do you showcase and amplify them, but I'm sure that there's a lot of people that support your cause. Like it should, I'm sure there would be a lot of people. Of <laughs> that <would> invest. <laughs> I mean, that's, no, I that's, mean that's, that. That's <laughs> Yeah. Well, give me your deck. I'll look at it. You know? oh, right. <laughs> See it's what's up. <laughs> no, but I mean, I mean, yeah. Uh, the, I'm, when when you have a, a cause behind it, um, yeah, it actually goes a longer way. Back back in the day when I was trying to pitch with a cause, um, people didn't believe in it so much. They were like, what are you, a charity? I think nowadays, this is 10 years later, right? Uh, I think you're in a good position because a lot of the millennials who are at the level that they could afford, even the older people, the 40s, the 50s of today, they, I think that, I mean, you said yourself, there's a bunch of 50 to 60 year olds that are listening to your podcast, this show, right? And I'm sure the reason why they listen to is because, you know, they want to get updated. They're very proud of their heritage. They want to see this go further. And I'm sure if there's anybody out there listening right now, um, that they would be interested investors in your company, right? Definitely. That is the goal. <laughs> yeah, that definitely is the goal. <laughs> so we have so much to unpack, but I feel like an hour has passed by so fast, almost an hour, but I do want to talk about Gobi Partners. Um, so I did read an article saying that in October of 2018, um, you know, you represented Gobi and in a pledge to invest 50 million USD dollars um, in businesses established by women. And so we know that a lot of what you do is to support you know, women leaders and women owned businesses. I want to know from you personally, like, you know, what is the driving factor? Um, and you know, what brings you to want to support women leaders? And if there is any like, um, gender, um, inequality in Southeast Asia. Before we get there, shout out. Love that. Yeah. We're all about that. And, you know, this is where we super align because everything, we create a lot of programs to support Asian women entrepreneurs out there and minority leaders. And the fact that you've been doing this before us, yeah. is that a blueprint that we didn't know about? Okay. But we, you've been doing this for a lot longer than us. Yeah. So we're, we want to hear a lot more yeah. about this. We absolutely love it. And shout out to you. Yeah, shout out to you. I feel like just recently they're now talking about it in the U.S. at least that um, 
less than 3% of venture capital funding goes to women-led companies, um, at least in the U.S. that I know of. But you've been doing this, you know, when you started Go Be the Partner. So I want to hear from you what your personal experience is like and, you know, what drives you what drives you to want to support women-led companies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, getting into women empowerment, in fact, before I never even used the word empowerment, I felt that it alienated men. Mm. Um, but I think that maybe I was just being, I was just dancing on eggshells, you know, I was tiptoeing around the fact. And um, it, it actually comes from when I, it, it actually comes deeply rooted from my personal family issues. Mm-hmm. Like my mom, uh, single mom, um, I came back to, she came back to Thailand, right? She had to quit her great job as being a nurse. She was an office manager here making a thousand dollars a month. Um, my dad who has reformed today, but he was just, uh, I mean, you know, Asia, like we cheat. Thailand is on some list of being the number one cheaters in the world. And, um, and I feel that a lot of things growing up, I did not see a lot of equality at all. Like my, mm-hmm. the, the sacrifices that women had to make the um, things that we had to kowtow and do like a lot of, and I, I do talk to a bunch of my friends. So again, growing up, whether it be high school, all the way to college, I get a lot of women talking to me about relationship issues, what their family expects of them, what they can or cannot do um, the ceiling that they're trying to break, you know, um, getting, not even getting sexual education, having to even talk and think and have an abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, just a lot of resources are not available for women. And I feel that, uh, and I went through, I remember a woman um, boss at Lehman once, she actually, come, rather than try to encourage people to grow, really was catty and just did not want other women to grow. So oh, wow. long story short, I think it just stemmed from a lot of, issues that I saw of women around me and girls around me um, that in Asia, and again, there's one more thing, which is in Asia, there's a a culture of um, hostess bars and the man goes in the Gulf and then, you know, a a bunch of these things. And it's just not fair, Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, so what I wanted to do was, of course, things are never fair in the world, but what I wanted to do was, find other alternatives and paths for people to be like, Hey, okay, well this happened. It's shit. Right. But, but there's this too, you know, like here's other things you could do, or here's a resource you can go to, or here's what this person did and whatever. So all of that stuff went into when, when I was at Moxie, um, it was kind of two things. I already had this empowerment side of me, but I found out with my then first M&A partner that 75% of my target market of the e-commerce was were women. Mm-hmm. And the rest of them were actually um, LGBTQ. Mm. So we had a bunch of, and of course in Thailand, there's, we have a ton of LGBTQ. Yeah. And so with that minority and, and um, I just wanted to empower more. So I got to mix business with pleasure for the first time. And that was the first time. So, so Moxie at that time was with women e-commerce. Right. And I remember when I was fundraising now, now, so that was all the issues, right? Then I remember that, um, during that time, it was really hard for me to raise money. I was actually pregnant, uh, of course, 
didn't unplanned pregnancy and I was fundraising and it was twins. Mm -hmm. And so my, um, I remember the investors were looking at me and they're like, how are you going to raise kids and have a, a company as well? Oh my goodness. And yeah. So, so that's kind of maybe the first inkling of how I got about the business sense of what mm -hmm. women needed. Right. So fast forward, that's how when I joined Gobi, so Gobi has been around for this year's 20 years now, um, also by a um, Taiwanese American. His name's Tom Sao. And um, his partner is uh, Kuke Mok from Singapore, um, <laughs> went to Berkeley. Anyway, so a bunch of Asian, Asian uh, Americans or Asian Westernized in Gobi. Um, and I was fortunate to join them. And one of the great things about the management was they really brought in. So actually they invested in Tamoxi. That's how I know Gobi. Oh, and they were okay. the one, one of the ones that were like, okay, well, yeah, you have kids, but so, you know, I mm -hmm. think, I th mm -hmm. you're resilient. I think you can multitask. You know, I think you could do this. You, yes. you definitely know your woman product. I believe in the business and you and your team. So fast forward, when I joined Gobi, um, I had met during that whole entire year of uh, years of being in the woman scene. Uh, I, I went to Singapore, met um, with Pocket Sun from SoGal. I met with Crib. I met with um, uh, Google. Uh, there's SheVC. I met with, oh, She Loves Tech, Virginia Tan, Leanne Ro Rovers um, from China and ha from Singapore. I was in, um, in Japan meeting with this other woman group. Um, well, they have issues there in Japan. And then, so everywhere around the world and all mm -hmm. these uh, women that just came together. So I have to say like the thing that you're hearing about now, um, it comes from a lot of these groups kind of getting on the bandwagon about five, seven years ago. And everybody started doing like, you know what? Hey, um, it's not about alienating men. It's about providing tools and resources to women. And, um, and because, like you said, uh, 3% of total VC in the States mm -hmm. was um, to women, I know for a fact, and a bunch of other women founders for a fact that it was hard to do it. And we have these other, we just need another path, right? And so mm -hmm. just level or give another, you know, up on the game for people. And I think the latest update of the same stat that you have this year, uh, it's 1.2% of total oh, VC. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think in 2020, it went down to like 2.3. So I'm not surprised that's that it terrible. actually went uh, even lower. That's terrible. Yeah. I, I yeah. It's yeah. Terrible. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's also, you know, just your story about how, um, you know, because you were pregnant, you know, they didn't um, think that you could run a business um, and raise your kids at the same time. But it's like, why can't we, you know, and I'm so glad that you were able to meet someone who actually, you know, believed in you because we're totally capable of, of doing that. And it's, it's, it's disheartening to see, you know, um, women who are pregnant or who have kids, you know, they have to go through that experience because they, they know that that is the perception that, you know, a lot of investors have male investors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a real thing. Yeah. What well, one group that I don't know if you've interviewed them yet. I do know that Shelly Porges is on your LinkedIn, but um, there's a group called the billion dollar fund. I think now they're called beyond the billion, but Sarah Chen and Shelly are going across the world. So they were the ones that put that initiative together that you're talking about. So to raise a billion dollars and talk to funds like us to pledge X amount 
to look for women founders, but also even if um, we say no, we have to help critique and help them grow because a lot of times, and maybe if you go through my articles that you see, I talk a lot about cognitive biases. So sometimes mm-hmm. like um, an investor would just say no to a woman or a man, just mm-hmm. to say, right. Um, just because of something they said or appear or, you know, that doesn't fit the stereotype. And so what they are trying to do is they make the investor accountable, here are the concrete ways and why I said no, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's not just, you know, gut feel and all this other stuff. And so, and if it is, at least you can address it. So this group um, came, well, we, I work a lot with uh, Sarah. So that's how we pledged $50 million. And I think, I think as of last year, I think we hit the target already um, of $50 million deployed um, throughout China, Hong Kong, Southeast Asia, all the way to Pakistan. That's amazing. So, yeah. That's, that's so amazing. And yeah, I'm just so inspirational just to hear more and more about this and knowing that in, over in Asia, because I think one of our weaknesses on this podcast that like we don't have enough representation in Southeast Asia on the podcast. And the fact that we're listening right now and hearing all the great work and progress that you guys are doing, it's, it's so, it's very touching for us to hear. And yeah, it's, I'm glad, I'm glad we had an opportunity to really talk about this issue because it is something that we, as Asians, we understand that that is deeply rooted in Asian culture. <laughs> you know, and it's just so oh, Yeah, and it's still around. And even, yeah. I think the biggest uh, issue here is that people are not aware. Um, there are a lot of women in C-suites, but mm-hmm. they don't always have decision-making power, which is where it counts. Yeah, and you know, you're still a Gobi, we see that, but you're also became CEO twice of two other companies afterwards. Wow, that's that's absolutely amazing, and we love to see that you can you're continuously bright, you know, you're breaking against all norms, you're breaking against all odds, and you're continuously grinding. Right? What is being CEO for you like now? What is your day to day like? Because I can imagine you're overwhelmingly busy, you know, and I, I actually have no idea how old your kids are. <laughs> so it's like on that task too, it's like, how do you manage everything and take care of yourself? It's uh, I, I have to say this new CEO position is definitely the most challenging job I have had ever. Um, so you heard the story. I I've been in e-commerce and banking, all this other stuff, but This time around, I am in 5G and it is, I'm definitely not a techie, right? I'm not from engineering. I'm from finance. I'm a business person. Um, The team that uh, my co-founder is actually the tech guy. He's like the telco guy. Um, But we saw an opportunity last year and and we took it. Um, And I knew the, and I knew I wanted to do it differently. Um, but we're, we're up against, I mean, basically with 5g, what we're doing is we're trying to utilize 5g to power smart cities. And, um, I know it's a, it's a whole, um, buzzword now, but I really believe me and my team really believes that with the power of knowledge and data, like we can actually use this to have more transparency 
to be, mm -hmm. you know, to bring safety to our uh, citizens. I don't know if you know what's going on in Thailand, but we have we've been under this democ this uh, government, which really uh, I don't want to touch upon it, but there are questions about how it was elected and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so, you know, just having the power of transparency, um, being able to decentralize data at citizens' fingertips, like that's something, and being able to provide something, that's really something that's still really deeply seated with us. And how we're going to do it, the politics that we're up against, and we're, we have major competitors, um, it's tough. So to answer your question, like what does CEO mean? I mean, frankly, when you're, it's, it's still a small startup, we have 10 people. Uh, we have partnerships with other companies which have about which we're about allowed to utilize their other hundreds of people, which is good. So we try to be the satellite, you know, and then we utilize um, people in different partnerships. But um, it's it's tough, like it's having to make the tough decisions. It's having to. So not only do you have vision, but visions just, you know, go so far unless you have to pivot. Mm -hmm. So we're in the middle of pivoting. Um, we have cash flow. We have uh, understanding our competitors, trying to make sure we're stealth and and being able to do things the way um, keeping our unfair advantage, um, and just trying to go for it. So it's it's a lot. Uh, luckily, I have to say, um, yes, COVID slowed things down, um, but we were able to launch Thailand's first 5G smart city in March this year. So congratulations. Yeah, it, we're, it's, it's huge. Like it's huge for, for me. And, and so um, it was a nice challenge to get over, but it's just the beginning. Now we just woke up the monsters. Now everybody's like, <laughs> oh my God, I want to do it. So I'm like, oh. So, so yeah, but that, that was really tough. Um, and now we're in COVID. So we have lockdown again, which is actually delaying a lot of things, but you know, everybody's dealing with it. Mm -hmm. the, the upside about COVID is I do have more time with my kids. So I have two girls, so they're twins. Uh, their father is Norwegian. Um, and yeah, they're seven now. And I see them every day. And so it's been really great to be able to work at home. You might have heard in the background, people walking up like, guys, I'm doing a podcast low. <laughs> they don't understand that, but you know. It's, yeah. so, it's okay, they're so, seven. Yeah. They're seven, yeah. But yeah, the, the upside is, um, I think the way I manage things is at home, I'm fortunate to live in Thailand where mm -hmm. I am able to hire a nanny. So mm. she's my co-parent. Like she runs this this house. She gets the groceries. She, she cooks. Kids <laughs> drop off the kids at school. Pick up the kids. You know. And so um, I'm so fortunate to have that because, as mentioned, I'm a single mom too, right? So, um, and I have my sister living with me, which and she's a teacher. So she's she's been able to help. But you can't do it alone. Mm -hmm. Right. So I I'm fortunate for that. Um, and COVID has brought us even closer, which is great. So a lot of challenges, um, but that's how I do it. You got to manage the household, you manage your work, <laughs> make the hard decisions and keep going. Right. I mean, now, the biggest thing, yeah. Now the biggest thing is I, I can't fail. If I find myself in a dark place, I cannot fail because of the kids. If not, the kids mm. won't have anyone. 
So for me, that's another driver for me. I mean, yes, I want to save the world, help Thailand, but it's for my kids. Yeah. Yeah. That's your why. I love that. So what's next for you, Shannon? Like, what are your goals for the next year? It could be the rest of 2021. Yeah. How do do you want to finish strong? And this question can be anything. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be strictly business. Yeah. It can be personal as well. You're extremely fit. You know, the first time I talked to you, you were literally in the middle of a yoga session. Oh, wow. <laughs> You're doing planks or something and talking to me. I'm like, wow. Planks and talking? Oh, my goodness. I can't do that. Yeah. So, so what's next year for the year? And what is your primary focus? And how do you want to close out 2021? Um, I'm trying. I've always been a, a very extroverted person. And um, COVID has been really good about focusing my priorities. So... This year and last, I have been very focused on kids, making sure I have quality time. I feel that with COVID, I don't even know when they join second grade, if they're going to be able to read at that level. Uh, So, you know, tiger mom comes in, right? (laughs) Uh, Or dolphin mom, whatever. Okay, so the kids um, work. I work's the biggest thing if um, I mean, aside from kids, but. I need to crack this even better. I know the potential We're we're ahead now. I have to keep that, you know, going. Um, and if there's anybody listening here who's in anything IOT or smart cities, please call me. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so, so I definitely want to make sure that this year ends well um, for next year um, because it's, 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 um, it's going to be rough. So, and this is exactly the tipping point that we need because now that we're coming out of COVID, uh, supposedly, um, there's much more emphasis on automation and all, all the stuff that I'm doing in health and, and citizens and all this stuff. So, so if I can't do it right now, like, you know, Shannon, you have a problem. So work is a big thing. Um, health is also such a big thing. Actually, yoga, I just picked it up in March last year or April last year. Um, I was a gymnast when I was younger, which is why I'm flexible, but I mm. didn't have the discipline. Um, and, and so actually for anybody who hasn't taken up yoga, like I've tried it for 20 years, I always did it wrong, which is why it didn't work. Now it actually focuses me every day. If I wake up and I have these wandering thoughts, stupid thoughts or angry thoughts, like it actually calms me down. So, um, focuses and then, then you feel like a warrior, you know, warrior princess. <laughs> yeah. So you feel, you feel like it was good for me to have that health, um, component come in because I've been really unhealthy for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the kind of the big, big parts. I think like for me, just getting back with uh, really close friends across the world, um, my family as well. Um, love isn't really on the cards yet. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very happy with the quality time I'm having with my kids and and being able to grow this. And I think you could only have like three, four real interests a year. Like if not, you can't do, I don't know. I, I used to say you could have it all, but somebody else coined this and I believe her more. It's like, you can have it all, but not all of them at the same time. So, <laughs> so yeah, I've been fortunate to be able to have, you know, different things at different times. And, um, I think that's also helps with the resilience, right? Okay. This one sucks right now. All right, fine. But this one's good. So then we'll wait for that thing to be good. And then that thing to, anyway. So, yeah. So, so that's, 
Yeah, <laughs> and, and we do believe you can have it all. Mm-hmm. So we just love that a lot and that mentality of never selling for less. Yeah. Appreciate yeah. that. So we do have one final question for you, Shannon. And that question mm-hmm. is, what advice do you have for an aspiring entrepreneur looking to get started? Something that you would tell yourself when you first started. So I say this a lot um, and I always go back to it. Um, I guess you already heard my story. I'm not the smartest person, uh, uh, but you you basically read the room, read the world, find out where the opportunities are. If you guys haven't read Blue Ocean Strategy, please read it. But I think one of the biggest, biggest thing that has helped me at least um, in my life is find out what's your unique selling point, what you're good at, what you can actually, um, you know, and and the way I do this, because it's very hard to find out what you're good at, um, you know, because it's, it's hard to analyze yourself, but it's a lot of trials and errors and don't try for a year or two years. You got to try like one of the biggest thing about learning what you're good at is also what you're bad at. Right. So, um, a lot of things that, um, So when I do this analysis where what I'm good at or I'm bad at, like I said, the SWAT, right? I also do an analysis of the competitor set of what they're missing, but I really go down to the the finite, right? And so with that, then I can start to see patterns and white spaces of where, and then you go into yourself, right? Your, your values and your strengths and all this other stuff and your network, what you have, your assets and, you know, um, soft skills, hard skills, And then you build that and then you're going to find this nice little space that you actually have an unfair competitive advantage. Hopefully it has a good bigger market size, um, right? Because you can't be too niche or unless you really dive deep and you are niche, who who knows? But I think the biggest advice that I could give anybody is um, you have to dig deep and really find out what that unique thing is. And it will change, you know, through the years. I think for me, It took me three big iterations in my life, you know, each time, three, four years, three, four years, three, four years to really find some things I'm good at. I'm still working on it. I'm still trying to find it. But you slowly come up with that. Like, it's not just MVP, but you slowly polish it more. Right. As you go. And I think that's just. um, it, It it will help you go a long way, especially for those who, you know, didn't you know, weren't the honor student in your class or, or, or whatnot, but, um, that does help (laughs) if those are listening and are still studying, that doesn't mean you should not do good in school. (laughs) (laughs) I just say for the people who didn't do good in school, it, this is, yeah. So, yeah. So I think that that's, um, my parting words or advice. Awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah. My biggest takeaway from that statement is like, you know, everyone's born you born with unique skills, strengths, and weaknesses. So being able to identify and go at your strength. I think so often in society is that we get so much, uh, like so much negativity because they're like, oh, working your weakness, working this, working mm. that. But what if we change our mindset to really focus on our strength? Exactly what you did, you know? Mm-hmm. Your strength is being social, being high EQ and you know it goes a long way because it actually builds confidence confidence as you continue on your path so really appreciate that advice a lot Shannon and Shannon how can our listeners find out more about you and reach out to you online 
Um, sure. Uh, I haven't been very active this year uh, in terms of talks and everything, but very happy to be on Asian Hustle. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I have a Facebook page um, and I think it's the page, not the personal one, because the personal one. Yeah. And so, so yeah, find me on Facebook and for the young ones, um, find me on IG. I think my IG, as you saw, Brian, it's much more life rather than like, if you like the business stuff, then it's like, you know, I, that's my LinkedIn. So mm -hmm. Shannon, I'm at LinkedIn. Yeah. And then that's also the um, Facebook page. But then if you want the fun stuff. The thing is you're going to see pictures of my kids, yoga, bikinis, my work, <laughs> me talking and traveling. So, I mean, that's really it. So of, of my IG, I don't know if that's really um, inspiring. We're, we're very uh, interested. So we'll, yeah. we'll also include all the show notes guys. So don't mm -hmm. worry about it. You don't have to Google search it. Just go to the website and we got you. <laughs> yeah. We'll include all of that in the show notes so that you can learn more about Shannon's life and her kids and yoga and everything else. Shannon, it was awesome here having you on the show today. It was so amazing just learning about your story. Thank you so much for being on. Yeah, thank you, Shannon. I really appreciate this a lot. And I know you're super busy. So thank you for setting aside an hour and or what is it? 15, 20 <laughs> minutes to be in the podcast. I really appreciate you. Yeah, thank you, Shannon. Yeah, thanks for having me, Maggie and Brian. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much. This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits. Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want Asian to continue being meaningful and give back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron.